Hello all and welcome to Sweating the Small Stuff, a show where we sweat the details and make our world richer. I'm your personal brain trainer, Cameron Boozer Jamari, and on today's episode, we'll be discussing the very perplexing question of knowing who to hire when you're dealing with dinosaurs. The other day, I was watching one of my favorite movies, Jurassic Park, and I thought about kind of like the entire premise of the movie and how inviting this weird hodgepodge of people to your super exclusive resort to figure out what is good, what is bad, whatever, didn't make a lot of sense given that there's no real precedent for the kind of place you're being invited to quote unquote inspect. So let's just jump into the plot for any of you who amazingly might not have seen Jurassic Park. According to the plot synopsis from Wikipedia, because I was too lazy to write my own, industrialist John Hammond and his bioengineering company, InGen, have created a theme park featuring cloned dinosaurs and prehistoric plants called, you guessed it, Jurassic Park. It is on the island of Isla Nublar, Isla Isla Nublar, okay, it's on the island of Isla Nublar, a Costa Rican island off the coast of Costa Rica. I could probably say this better. Basically, the the events that kick off the movie are a dinosaur handler is killed by a velociraptor during basically like the first scene of the movie. And the park investors, represented by the lawyer Donald Gennaro, demand the experts visit the park and certify it's safe. And that's where Sam Neill and uh, Jeff Goldblum and all the other characters come in is because of this raptor attack that demands this inspection. Here's what bugged me about the movie is you have a very clear problem, which is Raptors are eating your staff. How is bringing in this hodgepodge of people supposed to make sense? Now, to be fair, I think there were people that made sense to be included, such as the obvious person we run into as like the guy who should know about dinosaurs as much as anyone could possibly be expected to know about dinosaurs is actually, in my opinion, the park game warden, Robert Muldoon, who unfortunately gets munched on by Velociraptors later. You might remember him as the clever girl guy. Then there was also the lawyer, Donald Gennaro, and we'll get to why the lawyer actually makes a lot of sense in a second. But the last person I thought actually made a lot of sense to be included on this list of quote-unquote inspectors was mathematician and chaos theorist, Ian Malcolm, played by everyone's favorite heartthrob, Jeff Goldblum. And I'll tell you real fast, you probably did not need to actually bring him to the island because his entire job could have probably been summed up in a one-hour phone call that's basically, life finds a way, and that's it. Give me my million-dollar check. There's not, like, that one line pretty much should have just been all the warning and background they needed. Now let's switch gears to who Mr. Hammond invites. He invites paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, and paleobotanist Dr. Ellie Sattler. And then, for reasons that completely escape my knowledge, he invites his children, well, I guess it's his grandchildren, to an island that is currently being inspected for velociraptor attacks, which is just insane to think about. Like, there was literally a death. And you're going to bring children here not knowing what things still need to be fixed? That's just insane. So I think the biggest thing about this specific element of this movie, this who we're wrangling up to bring to the island, is very interesting to me because it's a very real question that lots of companies deal with, which is when you're at the cutting edge of technology, when you're dealing with all these different weird new things, how do you know who you're supposed to talk to in order to get the most meaningful, impactful correct results that both help your company and are also not just 
people who really should not be there giving opinions they shouldn't have. And a big part of this for me in the movie is the fact that a paleontologist and a paleobotanist can probably tell you a lot about dinosaurs and maybe something about their habits, but and we'll get there in a second. There's a big question to be had around, first of all, this context is completely foreign for dinosaurs. Dinosaurs have never been in captivity. And second, are we even sure they're dinosaurs? So don't worry, we'll get there. But I kind of wanted to start with like the most obvious thing about the incident, which should inform who should be called in to figure out their needs. In the movie, a worker was killed in the workplace by an animal. And when it comes to workplace injuries, here in the United States, we typically turn to OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Fortunately for me, I don't actually have to go out of my way to dig into, I guess, the laws and stuff. A lot of other much smarter, more legally inclined people than me have already done it for us. So I found a really great article from The Legal Geek and of course, uh, The Legal Eagle on YouTube has an entire video about Jurassic Park and I'll make sure to include those in the show notes. But I kind of want to just move past all this with a simple caveat. We don't want to dwell on the laws broken here because we have the fundamental problem that we aren't in the US. As I pointed out, we're on a private island off the coast of Costa Rica. And we're dealing with a secretive research initiative that involves a need to know access of inclusion. There's anyone who has any experience with need to know or has seen any movie where there's a document or classification can tell you that when it comes to big IP and these organizations having these super million billion dollar experiments, secrecy is key. So I could understand there being some considerations over who you would invite. But why you would invite a rookie paleobotanist, well, I guess they're not rookie, I guess they're fairly senior, but a paleobotanist and a paleontologist and kids that as much as they want to play the, we also wanted to do the focus group testing, it just seems like a completely irresponsible idea. Then there was this kind of bigger question, and this is the one I hinted at earlier. We aren't dealing with normal animals. We have kind of two different scenarios to help us navigate what's going to happen next. So in the movie, they have the dinosaurs. They're the big brontosaurus, you see it. There's the triceratops that Sam Neill gets all friendly with. And then of course we got a T-Rex and Velociraptor chasing everyone all over the island. But the real question that the movie poses is, are these really in fact dinosaurs? And so let me go through these scenarios real fast. On the one hand, let's assume that they are in fact the closest thing to a real dinosaur possible. And so if they're that close to a real dinosaur, I think it makes sense to lean on academia because you would want to lean on the current quote unquote experts in that subject. So in this one context, you would think a paleontologist and a paleobotanist would be ideal because they would help to speak to not just the authenticity, but further considerations about the park. Assuming they in any way spent time thinking about how to lock a velociraptor in a cage, which is still kind of a big thing that bothers me about including them in the movie is, yes, I get that it's super cool to have them in the movie and it plays well for the plot, but if I was an actual organization, I wouldn't invite them because their opinion probably wouldn't help a lot considering that we have no clue how dinosaurs would behave in captivity. Like, we need people who know about what we're dealing with in the context of wild animals that are meant to be wild for the most part. And even then the experts invited probably know less about these dinosaurs than the people who actually made them in the labs. Like the little Looney Tunes machine in the beginning introduces us to a room full of quote-unquote experts who should know plenty about these dinosaurs. This brings me to my second scenario, which is that the dinosaurs are not actually dinosaurs. The dinosaurs we see in the movie are hinted to be something else. In the first Jurassic Park, it is made clear 
that these dinosaurs are genetically modified hybrids. In their version of a small world ride, the little DNA guy explains that they have mostly incomplete DNA to operate off of. So they take the DNA and they throw in frog DNA to quote-unquote fill in the gaps. This becomes a critical point of the next movie, The Lost World Jurassic Park, in which it turns out that the reason the dinosaurs can survive is because amphibians are known to spontaneously, uh, I guess, change. In, or, in their case, they had a, if I recall, it was insulin deficiency. They had something that they had to get from their food that they were fed during feeding time in order to make sure that they didn't slip into what was effectively a diabetic coma. That was their only mechanism by which they were supposed to keep the animals under control, which still sounds like there's a lot of time in between feeding and them going on a rampage before they fall asleep that people are going to get knocked out before they fall asleep. And even then, life found a way and the dinosaurs are thriving by the next movie all the way up through Jurassic World. And in the first Jurassic World it is confirmed by B.D. Wong's character, the chief researcher who is making Jurassic World possible, that these creatures, if they had their full genomes, if we had found perfectly intact DNA, would look drastically different. So on the one hand, we're assuming that these dinosaurs are supposed to be dinosaurs, but in reality, we're operating with what is probably a completely different type of animal that has not really existed on this earth before, in which case there's probably no one in the world qualified to speak on the safety of the park because they have no clue what to reasonably expect from these hybrids. And since that's basically what happens, that's what we're going to focus on moving forward. And I, I want to go back, like, if these were dinosaurs, okay, you could make the argument that paleontologists and a paleobotanist would be ideal. But these are not really dinosaurs. And so you are going to have to default to something more fundamental because any expectations you have about herd behavior and whatnot goes out the window with two simple facts. One, they're genetically different from their predecessors. So they're probably not going to behave the same in the wild because they won't have the same abilities. And secondly, anything that has to do with nature and nurture about how an animal is raised feeding into its own habits is not going to be present here. I'll say this as a teaser. We're definitely having an episode for that coming up soon. But for right now, I still want to focus on how these simple facts about these quote-unquote dinosaurs completely change who should be investigating this park issue. And this also means that despite their best intentions and expectations, there are a lot of variables even OSHA probably couldn't help you account for. So with that all in mind, for the rest of the episode, we're just going to focus on that original question I proposed to you at the start of the episode. Who do you hire when you're dealing with the crazy amount of issues and questions around park safety that plagued Jurassic Park from the very beginning? And I'm not just saying from the moment that a velociraptor decided to eat a dude, but before that, from the foundation of the concept of a park where dinosaurs and amusement parks go together. Personally, I think they already had an appropriate expert on site in the form of Mr. Muldoon, who we meet at the beginning of the movie. He's the, uh, just as a quick reminder, the game warden of Jurassic Park, and he spends all movie sprinkling little tidbits of wisdom on how to protect the staff, like having locking mechanisms on the vehicle doors, or speaking to the intelligence of the raptors and how they are able to see all the different aspects of their cage in terms of how to break out and how they're testing it and proving that even in this limited context in which they've lived on this earth, they are still incredibly intelligent creatures who should not be underestimated. And for a weird amount of the movie, John Hammond continues to kind of undermine him, saying, spared no expense, done all this, blah, blah, blah. When in reality, he is very clearly pointing out legitimate issues that should be addressed 
well before the park even got to this stage. And again, he comments on how you should not be underestimating these animals, having hunted some of the biggest, most dangerous game on the planet. His resume, for the brief amount of it that we get to see in the movie, is peppered with incredible examples of how he is incredibly qualified to see the oversight of these animals. And yet, it feels like in the movie, he does not get a lot of credit. His expertise even extend into when he finally dies in the middle of the movie trying to help Dr. Sattler get to the way station so that he, she can turn on the power to the park. He knows what it's like to be hunted. He has felt it when a predator is stalking him. And even in the limited context of how very little time these raptors have spent on Earth, he can feel how to expect them to behave. And that, I think, makes him very qualified. The next most logical person that I think they did a good job of including was lawyer Donald Gennaro, because most lawyers should be fairly familiar with OSHA existing and the fact that there is all sorts of governing bodies and legal authorities out there who could give guidance on this. Surely they could have brought someone from OSHA there to say, does it make sense to keep loaded guns around these animals? Especially when at the very beginning of the movie, as I believe Legal Eagle points out in his video, you have the game hunter holding a loaded shotgun, which is basically pointed at the face of one of the staff that's supposed to be helping offload these Velociraptors. And yeah, I guess at this point you're probably thinking, well, that's cool and all because these are just the characters happen to be there. But do you have any actual information for us, Cameron? Well, yes, I do. I wanted to think about a very realistic Jurassic Park. I wanted to say, let's assume for whatever reason that tomorrow we found out we can make dinosaurs and we decided we wanted to build Jurassic Park. Now, we need a facsimile for Jurassic Park. We need a way to understand what a park like this entails in terms of problems, in terms of questions, in terms of logistics. And in the movie, Samuel L. Jackson points out that the park has all the same opening issues of a zoo and an amusement park wrapped up into one. Fortunately, we, believe it or not, already have one of those that has been operating exceptionally well for years, and it's called Bush Gardens. It's operated by SeaWorld Entertainment, who also operates SeaWorld, so we have a legitimate example of an amusement park with roller coasters and rides and all the other things that they wanted alongside a bunch of animals that are more than capable of killing anyone attending the park. I really kind of want to dig into this because Florida was my old stomping grounds and Busch Gardens was the shiz. If you went to Florida for Disney World, you missed the best amusement park right next to the best beach. And also, I want to make it clear, this is in no way a sponsored episode. I'm just a big fan. All right, so a little more background. There are, in fact, a lot of bush gardens. I think there's four total, two of which are still open. And the most successful, or at least my favorite, is Bush Gardens, Florida, dealing in carnivores and herbivores and roller coasters since March 31st, 1959. Now, let me give you a little history lesson about Jurassic Park. The book for Jurassic Park was written in 1990, and the movie was released in 1993. So let's actually assume that these incidents happened in the real-world Jurassic Park in at the earliest 1990. Bush Gardens was proving their business model for the most part for over 30 years prior with a much higher success rate than we saw in the movie and far, far fewer fatalities. I would personally argue that rhinoceroses are very close to triceratops in terms of what the animal's actual behavior and danger potential is like. Elephants and giraffes are a pretty good facsimile for brontosauruses and cheetahs and lions probably make for a good facsimile to raptors. T-Rexes are maybe a little out of your jurisdiction. All this to say that, yeah, I can understand the reasoning for a paleontologist and paleobotanist being your first and second choices, but there has been a tried and tested stomping ground for this idea 
for at least 30 years prior. So with all of this in mind, I'm going to go back and answer my original question, which was, who do you hire to inspect Jurassic Park? And if anyone in the Jurassic Park world had any interest in keeping their park open and safe, in their world alone, they should have been able to get Mr. Muldoon and Donald Gennaro to in some way give serious recommendations, both from an animal handling standpoint and from an OSHA recommendation standpoint. Flipping over to the real world, I would argue that John Hammond, with all of his money, could have easily ripped off the Bush Gardens model, or at least gotten someone from Bush Gardens to give some consulting advice. And again, OSHA is a real thing. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode on who you should hire when you're running your dinosaur amusement park. And I'm hoping to actually have a few more episodes on Jurassic Park in the coming weeks because, man, that movie is a treasure trove of amazing small details I feel like have not gotten enough attention. Anyway, if you liked the episode, I really hope you'll like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. If you have thoughts on the episode and want to give us feedback, or just tell us the other topics and small stuff you think we should be sweating over, you can hit us up at our email, smallstuffshow at gmail.com, or tweet at us with hashtag smallstuffshow. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and we honestly just invite any feedback. We love hearing from you guys. And as much as we love making the show, it's just that much more fun knowing that you guys are involved. Anyway, I'm your host, Cameron Buzar-Jamari, reminding you, from movies to media to the world around us, it's details like these that make it worth sweating the small stuff. Mm -hmm.